HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. For more information, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers, coming to you today live from Piscinus Ranch, where tomorrow we will welcome 45 members of the regional grains economy for a wonderful convening, talking about infrastructure, equipment, processing, milling, enterprise budgets, um, acreage needs. It's exciting, very exciting. And how topical that today's radio program would be about a young farming couple, young entrepreneur couple working in regional grains, baking, and uh, rebuilding the regional grain economy. I am so pleased to have Nathan and Sage from the Barn Owl Bakery. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. So they're both on there, so we're going to take turns on the mouthpiece, and Sage, do you want to get us started off just describing your operation, where you are, what you do, how it's going? Yeah, we have a um, wood-fired bakery on Lopez Island in Washington State, and um, we bake sourdough, naturally leavened, mostly whole grain breads here, and it's going really well. We're just growing each season. We sell more bread, and we're working to incorporate more local grains into our whole operation, local being preferably from the island. Do you want to talk about how you got to where you are and um, the steps you took as a small business on a small island making small loaves of bread? How we got to where we are? Um, well, I started baking um, naturally leavened 
bread in a wood-fired oven with a baker named Eduardo Morel in the um, San Francisco Bay Area in the Marin Headlands. And his business model was really um, achievable for someone kind of learning the ropes, just setting up a stand at a farmer's market and getting access to an oven and getting a healthy starter. And it really came out of the dream of Alan Scott, who has created the plans for the wood-fired oven to kind of, he saw this village baker so that, you know, one small entity could take on the the hearth of a community and bake the bread for a small community. It doesn't, it's not a model that is um, very expandable. <laughs> it doesn't scale up, you know, very well. But um, but it works really well for a small community, which is where we found ourselves on Lopez Island. And um, and I just started baking bread and selling it at the market, and it just kind of went from there. And we were able to just go very incrementally on how we grew. First, we found someone with an Allen Scott oven, and we, you know, brought rising loaves in a truck bed over to his oven and baked them and then brought them to the farmer's market on some, um, like an old door table. And then, you know, sort of each week, each month, each year, we were able to just, within our budget of no operating capital whatsoever, keep <clears throat> building and growing. And then um, with the local agriculture here and our um, um, <laughs> our uh, loyalty A to amazing local agriculture, supportive and cool start... community of dynam dynamic people. Yeah, we do. There's a really cool community of growers here who are really passionate about making their livelihood based on the land and then also just making the island as self-sufficient as possible. So um, we just started using um, produce grown on the farm that we grew ourselves, uh, partly out of economic reasons, just to not have to come up with cash to buy pretty high-value um, crops like raspberries and rosemary and pumpkins. So we grew a lot of that ourselves just out of necessity to have some interesting inclusions to put in the bread that we didn't have to pay for. And then um, <clears throat> we started getting given 25-pound bags of the Fortuna wheat that a local farm here, Horstron Farm, was growing. People were wanting to support local grain growing by becoming part of their grain CSA and getting 25-pound bags of wheat berries, but then they would kind of find themselves supportive but not really using it. So um, serendipitously, a mill started, I think it was just the time, the time was right for all of this to happen, and um, a really wonderful man um, who was quite capable in machinery and things started this <clears throat> stone mill um, on the island and started milling up the Fortuna wheat grown by Horstron Farm, and we were able to use up the entirety of the grain CSA in just a season, and then they, the farm was able to grow 
double that amount the next year just for us. So we realized that we were really a, a buying a, a sustainable market for the for the farms that are interested in growing grain here. Um, we have a lot of demand, and we can buy up way more products than um, an individual can really, you know, grain is a hard crop for individuals to support. You know, people might buy a pound here and a pound there, and that's not going to make it work for a farmer to to grow, um, you know, enough to support that, that operation. But so there's a lot of economies of scale and growing, and this is actually the topic that I just walked out of our convener session was when we're talking about scale and profitability and viability on for different the different parts of the supply chain of the regional grain economy. Mm -hmm. um, can you just give a sense of, you know, for those who are, it all sounds like magic and it's a beautiful emerald island full of beautiful fairy tale like people, but like give us a sense of the um, the scale that you're operating, like how many days are you baking, how many loaves are you making, how many pallets of, of, of flour are you going through. I had those amazing honey buns with the apricots in them. Totally blew my mind. Um, but for people who are thinking in business terms about whether a small bakery might be an enterprise that they could add onto their operation or welcome um, a small bakery as an enterprise, mm through a lover or through a friend on their, you know, in their vacant building. Just a sense of what kind of economic activity um, you guys are able to manifest in that small space. Yeah, we now bake um, three times a week, and we supply three to four times a week. We've added different products. We bake um, about... 200 to 300 loaves per bake, um, and those breads go to local grocery stores and local restaurants, um, and those the grocery store is our main wholesale um, venue, and then the restaurants are a very sweet relationship, but they're a little less reliable than the wholesale market and then the farmer's market in the summer as well as a winter market that we've helped set up um, with just a couple of other farmers is our very best um, retail market in terms of getting the most the highest profit margin on our on our goods selling direct so that's you know as much as people can sort of sell their sell the bread directly is some of the best return that you get on your <laughs> bread investment. But I um, I would say it's a pretty easy uh, uh, business model for doing it any size. Some farms I know that, you know, there's the grain gathering in uh, Mount Vernon, which is just uh, a ferry ride away for us. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing bakers and farmers and millers that convene there. Um, each summer, and a lot of people go just to add CS, you know, a bread CSA to their vegetable CSA, um, and just start with you know their 20 boxes, or you know taking on 
larger wholesale accounts, but it's not a, it's a physically demanding uh, work, and it's also highly, there's just like a lot of variables that we deal with bake to bake from the natural oven to the wood-fired oven that makes it hard to scale up to a point of kind of an anonymous wholesale product. Um, so I think there are limits in terms of how far you can take a wood-fired bakery. Um, and we're sort of, we just sort of feel that out as we, as we go along and, and grow. Um, other kind of nuts and bolts, um, yeah. That's no, about. that's great because you yeah. guys are bringing in your your flour on the ferry, so you're probably very aware of wanting to limit your input of mm-hmm. flour from elsewhere. Yeah. I guess maybe just contextualizing your emergent, really hyper local grain economy in the larger region. Um, where are you getting your regular grain from, um, and kind of what's the state of grain growing in the Pacific Northwest for those who aren't as familiar? Um, the state of grain growing in the Pacific Northwest. Um, do you want to pass it to Nathan, or are you still in? Yeah, I do want to pass it to Nathan. He just, um, well, we, yeah. Nay, I can switch. The state of grain growing in the Pacific Northwest and how much of the local area. Hi. Hi, welcome to the radio show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, grain go growing in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and how much we where is that now, and what the opportunities are for regional totally. more regional grain economy? I mean, it's like grain growing has always been like a huge part of what happens in the Pacific Northwest, but most of the grain has gone to feed. So like barley has been a huge one, and malting as well. And uh, it's really only in the last like couple of years that Farmers and uh, bakers have started looking at more like heirloom and heritage kinds of grain to work into their systems. And that's really like where our focus comes in. There's a, you know, we've been growing this one type of grain here on the island, Fortuna. It was brought here by a kind of grain enthusiast. It was from the 60s in Montana, traditionally bred, nice grain, stripe rust resistant, bakes nice bread. But we use, like, a lot of different types of grain in the bakery and a lot of different types of flour. And so our, in the past couple of years, we've kind of made it our bakery's project to identify some other grains that we can give to farmers to grow for us. And, uh, you know, this is all, you know, on the island we're talking here. And, uh, you know, we're interested in the older grain varieties both for nutrition purposes and for flavor purposes. Like most modern grains have been bred for yield and yield only, and uh, versus they used to breed wheat for bread, like for exactly the kind of style of bread bread that we make. And so, like taking some of those older wheats, planting them out, seeing if they grow here, and seeing if there are, I guess, ways to grow them that uh, is different than ha- than that they how they grow modern wheat but that these older grains might grow better under those conditions, like lower seeding rates per acre or lower nitrogen inputs or, um, you know, different timing, I guess. 
as well. Uh, if you're far, if you're on a mobile if you're on a mobile phone, go near a window, and if you're on a cordless phone, go closer to the base. I am. And cordless. I'm sorry that our equipment is not very good on the radio end. It's they're very nice and they're in Brooklyn, but they're still kind of broken. Don't have good radio equipment. Um, I, I am corded. I'll stand. I'll okay, stand good. Still. Um, so, so one of the big questions, you know, is we're thinking kind of macro scale. Uh, I mean, obviously the micro scale of a small island that's really focused on sustainability and resilience and uh, has, you know, suffers the the transparency. Uh, and clarity of having everything come in on a, on a ferry, mm-hmm, totally. it, every, on fuel and food and everything. Yeah. Uh, you guys are a great microcosm, but kind of macrocosmically, looking at the near domination of a very small bundle of of crops across our larger American landscape, most of which are grown in massive monocultures, uh, and genetically very uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain some of the advantages of a more regionally adapted grain economy in terms of the businesses and the local wealth and the opportunity for experimentation, um, but just kind of in terms of, like, structurally and genetically mm-hmm. what your vision is in doing this work and maybe a little bit how you're pursuing it? Totally. Um yeah, I mean that's I mean that's exactly sort of what we're up against, and I guess uh, you know there's a seed library here on Lopez, and it's it's sort of headed by this guy Canacopians, who's a real a- amazing person, and he has this little phrase that he uses where it's like we can breed the heirlooms of tomorrow, like today in the seed library, and so <clears throat> with the grain, that's really what I think of as being our project is taking these older genetics that, um, for example, uh, the plants might have much larger root systems, right, which makes them more adaptable to drought and better adapted to lower nutrient conditions, but it doesn't make them very good uh, for growing densely in a field, and thus their yields are going to be a little bit lower. But they have these other qualities that I find, like, really um, appealing. And so taking these older plants with these genetics and planting them out on the island here, here in our local microclimate and local conditions, and just really just doing the old-fashioned kind of selection in the field where you choose out the nicest couple plants every year, and then you have separate plots going where you're always planting out those, those few nicest plants from each of the types of wheat you're growing. And, um, you know, and so you're like growing a main crop but then from that, you're selecting out the nicest ones to hopefully, you know, just, just select for a, a type of wheat or barley or whatever you're after that is really quite adapted to your area itself. And, uh, you know, modern genetics of, of, of wheat, they really have created this amazing plant that's ideally suited to growing under one very specific type of agriculture and that's agriculture with high nitrogen inputs, chemical nitrogen inputs, um, and very densely planted, and the, and the grain, the wheat, is very short um, to make harvesting easier, but also to, uh, so it doesn't fall over if it gets wet or the wind blows, something like that. And so if you grow modern varieties under those conditions, they do quite well and they yield quite high. 
And if you grow heritage and heirloom varieties under those conditions, they're not going to do well. They're going to yield quite low. But if you grow those old varieties under organic conditions, paying attention to the kind of wheat you're growing, then they're going to yield really high. And conversely, if you grow a modern wheat under organic conditions and you space them out more, they're not going to perform that well. And I think it's, you know, from our perspective, it's like comes comes down to culture and like how you treat the plant more than it does the, um, you know, getting the newest and best genetics out of the plant breeding labs. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of disease issues here with grain, especially like stripe rust in our area, but out east it would be like fusarium, um, which are a super serious issue. And so the plant breeders will tell you, oh, you can't grow these older varieties because they're susceptible to stripe rust and fusarium and different blights. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with culture. Like if you space the plants apart more, then air can get in, uh, you know, and, and keep things like the mold down. But certainly that's an issue. And, uh, you know, we've been pretty lucky in our grain years thus far that the summers have been really dry, which helps with the mold. But if we get a bad stripe rust year, it's very possible that some of these varieties that we've been really liking for the past couple of years might not do that well. Um, so it's it's really a balance, and it comes down to, like, the farm and, you know, what they feel like they can market to their customer base. Like uh, uh, Lonesome Whistle Farms down in Junction, Junction City in Oregon is growing heirloom grains, and they're not so concerned about yield because they sell their grains for a pretty high price. And so they get a good price per acre off of their low-yielding grains. If they were trying to sell their grains on the commodity market, it, you know, it wouldn't be a, a functional practice for them. But so, our, so here on Lopez, our bakery can kind of function as a, a wholesale buyer but at a premium price, giving the farmers like a, a pretty good price per acre for their work um, and giving us these really top-notch, delicious, beautiful grains to work with. Um, and then also giving, like, the consumers this sort of, you know, from our perspective, a really interesting story to tell them about their bread. Um, you know, we can talk about how this, you know, wheat is from 1790 England and was brought over on, you know, this ship and then planted down in the Willamette Valley and worked its way north. Um, and it's like connecting people to the history of, of wheat breeding um, and also, like, the flavors of the past, because these wheats, like, kind of taste different, and they look different, and they bake a different kind of bread. Well, I like how you're describing this a lot, and actually, Casey is, Casey and Jeff are here from Lonesome and Whistle, and Casey oh, right is this incredible organizer of this convening. And um, one of the conversations that we're having here is about basically not only getting back into relationship with the genetics, as you're saying, kind of breeding tomorrow's heirlooms today and mm -hmm. re-entering as practitioners, growers and um, seed breeders and bakers, choosing the varieties, uh, not only re-entering a relationship with the genetics and the kind of destiny of the plant, but also um, figuring out where the places of opportunity are to incrementally incrementally and wiggle, you know, in a market, in a feasible way, um, strategically engage. And I wonder if you could talk about, and I'm sure it's not a system that's 
you know, highly um, sophisticated, but maybe just a little bit like how, or systematic. But, um, you know, how are you approaching the project of discovering these grains? What institutions are you looking to? What relationships are you calling on? Like, how are you undertaking the grow out? Um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, how how much is it a little part of your work? Is this research and, and is it a, is it half? Like, right. Does it keep you up at night because you're taking too many risks? That kind of yeah. That kind of uh, thing. Yeah, sure. Again, um, remember who your audience is. Is people who might want to do this. Totally. So, um, you know, like I said, I got into grain from the bakery perspective. So my goal is always to try to find grains that are going to grow good on Lopez, but also are useful in the bakery. Um, And I started out just sort of as any sort of interested person was, would just like, I've, you know, I'd kind of collected some seeds over the years for different wheats and barleys. And then um, there was a seed company here on Lopez, and she had grown several different types of wheats and barleys. There was a seed library here on Lopez that had some grain seed. And then there's a fellow here on Lopez by the name of uh, O.J. Lafide, who is a a grain nut. And uh, he has an extensive collection of seed as well that he's amassed over the years. And so, uh, you know, starting to get into it, I didn't want to dig myself too deep because there's hundreds of thousands of varieties of wheat, and each one has like a very compelling story. Um, And so it's tempting to kind of want to go overboard. And then most of these older wheats are only available in very small quantities, Um, you know, like seed packet size or maybe a quarter pound or something like that, way below what a grain farmer can really deal with on their equipment. Um, And so I took on as my job essentially is like collecting some varieties that I was interested in that I found compelling, their story compelling, uh, but also I felt like could go into the bakery and just planting them out, classic sort of trials. I hammered my stakes in and labeled them and um, just hand-seeded them, or you can use a little, like, a push disc seeder. That works great, too. And uh, just grew them out, see, you know, recorded my yields, extrapolated out my yields per acre, made observations throughout the growing season in terms of disease. Um, and then I had OJ, who had done a lot of trials, grain trials before, come and walk through the fields with me and, you know, ask him to point things out as well. Um, And then, you know, I sort of went through and I selected out from that, you know, group some that I I felt grew really well, were really beautiful, had good yield, um, and that were worth taking on to the sort of next next step, which is another set of of seed expansions. So planting out the seed that I harvested this year. And then this year I would harvest enough seed and if I, to not only test it in the bakery, because I still don't have enough seed to grind into flour to actually test a lot of these grains, but I can test it in the bakery after this year, and then I'd have enough to give to a farmer and say, you know, plant me an acre or two acres of this grain, and I'll buy it from you when, you're, when, you're, um, you, know, when you harvest it. And then I started getting more into other seed sources. So actually the Canadians still grow a lot of these great older heirloom wheats mainly because they're, they're niche markets for them and they bake really nice bread, these older wheats do. Um, so there are sources of seed from Canada that you can't really get in the U.S. And then um, 
the USDA maintains this database of germplasm, all different kinds of plants, but of course I was interested in the grains. And it's just like a candy store of grain. It's like you go on the internet, you search for this grain on the USDA site, and you click a little button, and it's like add to my shopping cart. And they'll send it to you for free, and it's a tiny little packet of five grams of seed, but these are like next level, rare, beautiful seeds. Like I got a whole, whole set of um, grain from Sweden, and these are Swedish land race wheats, and they have this allele in them, in their genetics, that um, codes for higher nutrition. Um, and it's a you know, wild type, and not all of them have it, but they've gone through these old Swedish land races and found the ones that do. And the modern plant breeders are saying, oh, let's you know, take these genes and put them into modern wheat, which is a great idea. But I look at it, I'm like, oh, these great old wheats already have this gene, so let's grow these old wheats. And they're these beautiful, uh, soft, white, um, you know, small grain wheats that, you know, uh, from an industrial baking standpoint, would never make a loaf of bread. But in our process, in our, like, nice, small artisan process, we can turn any of these wheats into a cool loaf of bread. We just have to kind of adjust and get a little finicky with it. But, um, you know, that's one of the cool things about the bakery is we can actually use these old groovy wheats in a way um, that makes them accessible to people. So, I don't know. Well, I just want to testify at this point to how the how good that groovy bread is. And um, Yeah, thank you. And the cult's following. I mean, I was lovingly passed from hand to hand for about a week between those islands, and on every counter was your bread, and everyone was toasting it and eating it and in love with it. And similarly in Maine, you know, Tinderhearth Bakery is this Mm -hmm. beloved beloved bakery, and around the country this is popping up to be another core pillar of the local wealth creation, you know, making jobs and um, more economic activity, especially in places... Um, where you have to stack enterprises on a piece of land. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk yeah. a little bit about your um, getting your business started and your relationship with you know, how you got access to your business place and maybe some tips for other people who were thinking about starting a, a bread-baking business on a farm. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, how they might undertake that and learn um, from you know how that went well and what you learned. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to say, what you just said reminded me, is that from a farmer's perspective, with all these little bakeries and breweries popping up all over the country, from a farmer's perspective, I think there's a huge market potential for these older wheats with a good story. Like every baker I know who's doing similar things, we're like tripping over ourselves to try to get our hands on like interesting wheats or wheats with a story or wheats that are going to bake different or have a different flavor. And um, it's hard to do. You know, the seed's not out there, the flour's not out there, um, readily available. So there's this kind of, like, underground, like, trying to find these different things. Um, And so I think from a farmer's perspective, there's actually a lot of potential for growing these older wheats, accepting lower yields, but then getting a higher price for them with your local baker or brewer, um, you know, selling directly to them rather than the commodity. But... How we got into this place where we are, beautiful Midnight's Farm. Thank you, David, Bill, and Faith Vanderput, if you're listening. Um, we landed here on accident. We were staying in a little apartment while I was doing some work. 
and uh, Sage was baking in that same apartment. And then it wasn't very long, maybe a couple of weeks or a month or something, where we were standing out in the field pounding some steaks in the grass, and David drives by and he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, we're staking out where the bakery's going to go. And, uh, you know, we hadn't talked to him about that at all. And he just kind of nods and says, all right, and drives off. Um, I think he assumed we were probably joking. And, uh, you know, then fast forward a couple of years, and that's more or less where the bakery is. And really, you know, our situation here I think is pretty unique, but that's not to say the same possibility doesn't exist wherever you are, is that there's a very generous landowner who uh, is looking to do exciting things with the property and is willing to partner or, you know, with us to create um, essentially a livelihood, like a business on the, on the land and land base, um, you know, that can sustain our family. And, well, you know, it's not always easy. I think any relationship that's, you know, personal and economic is going to have complexities to it. And I think, uh, you know, for us, we just have a good uh, working relationship. Like, we get along really well, and that helps. Um, but also, you know, we drew up some contracts, and they were never the best contract or set in stone, but it was like a way for us to continually be in conversation about what we wanted to do and what our goals are on the property. And so that became a really useful tool. And, and you know, it became a, sort of an, uh, a venue, I guess, for us to express our needs and our concerns on both sides, you know. Um, and so that was really helpful, but we didn't necessarily think about it in like a real strict legal sense. It was more just like a good way to dialogue. Um, and so I think that's really important. I think contracts are actually really important for anybody engaging with a landowner. I found that landowners can get really uh, sensitive about their little piece of the planet, rightfully so. And um, it helps just to keep those lines of communication wide open. And um, but also dream big, you know, it's like, it's, you know, just like be willing to put it all on the table and say, this is what we really want to do. And you never know. It's like it turned out that here uh, that dream was shared or at least supported. Um, and so it was, you know, we felt had this feeling as we were getting the bakery going on Lopez that all of these doors just kept opening up and that we could just step through them in this kind of effortless way. Um, and so we just kept on doing it. And it's not to say that there wasn't a lot of work involved, because um, there was, but uh, it just had this really natural feel to it, and it still does. And um, for that, we're really thankful for the community and for... Oh, I think there's probably some magic, too. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, it's a fully magic process, like inexplicably so oftentimes, um, you know, which is, which is fun. I don't know. Well, I... Um but definitely to anyone yeah, who's thinking really about it. it's really impressive. I have to say, it's really impressive. And the thing that strikes me, you know, there in the Grange Hall and at the conference, you know, and the architecture of that place, the fruit trees and the, the logging, the infrastructure of, you know, small family farms that were supporting the mainland and supporting the lumber camps and the mines and the lime kilns, uh -huh. um, you know, really... Very obviously, infrastructure that was built during an era of massive resource extraction, and yeah. the story you're telling about the way that wheat was grown—again, it's a story 
about a kind of agriculture that expanded because of reclamation and settlement and dams, uh, Bureau of Reclamation, and the, the extension of, of scientific agriculture via the Extension Service. So, so much um, of the context in which you're operating, the architecture, um, the landscape, the ecology, the predominant patterns of farm businesses has to do with an era of tremendously clever and opportunistic people building their business structures um, in what's almost like the golden age of extraction. Mm-hmm. And a question about how we're moving forward in an age, um, you know, kind of as like the daughters and granddaughters of extraction, mm-hmm. when we have contract contra- contraction happening in our economy and the opportunity that's available for young people and the land that's still available for farming and the resilience and kind of health and wealth of our natural ecosystems and farmland even itself, the health of the farmland is less healthy, less um, capable of production than it was when that, you know, when that grange was built, when those, um, when this infrastructure was built. And the question of how are we to be opportunistic in our restoration and Rediversification and re-regionalization, um, and how are we able to add add through diversity and 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 innovation and engagement, add that diversity back in um, to ignite the, the healing part of of the process? And can it be as much fun on the way back towards healthy soil as it was on the way down? <laughs> Um, in degrading soils. That's the kind of like, that's the ultimate question I'm having. I think it can be. Just listening to you, I think it can be. Yeah, it it might be. I don't know. I think the jury's still out. And I, you know, I think I would be lying if I didn't say there was some deep misgiving sometimes about basing a business off of plowing the soil. Because like most grain is grown by tilling up the soil. And I, you know, that's, I believe inherently can be inherently harmful, um, and so I think from our bakery perspective, really thinking hard about the ingredients we're using, and if they're being grown in a way and in a community and by a person that ha- shares the same values we do, and is is sort of deeply questing after that same question that you just posed, and it's not like. You know, they have all the answers, but, you know, they feel that same uh, moral sense of land stewardship deep in their hearts in the same way that we do. And being able to work with those people, like a horse truck. So we want our chefs to be really committed and our wholesale buyers at the co-ops to be really committed and our moms and our cousins and our friends from high school, them to be really committed and recognizing that the dollars that are flowing to these new businesses and new economies mean acres on the ground. And oh. every time a CSA grower t- takes some land uh, out of veggies and does a rotation through, through grains or beans, that's increasing the health of the soil in a way that is measurable, not in dollars, which, by the way, we can't eat, um, but in acres, which we can. Um one last thing I wanted to mention, since we're on the grains topic and in the grains conference zone here, is 
some of the other places to learn about grains. There's really great grain books and wood-fired um, bakery books. A proliferation in the last few years of this of literature on this topic. A really awesome new book come out um, from Amy Halloran on the new bread basket. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, really awesome book uh, about Montana grain growers in cooperation called The Lentil Underground. Uh-huh. The grain gra- you mentioned the grain gathering. There's also the kneading conference, which is in Maine. Uh, there was just a Cascadia grains meeting for the Cascadia region. Uh, any other good sources you want to talk about? Uh, the uh, Jack Lasers, the organic grain grower, is a lot of fun to read. Um, he's got a great sense of humor and real. Uh, you know, he's been growing grain for longer than I've been alive. So it's a super helpful resource. Super helpful resource. Thank you all for your listening, and thank you all for your chatting, and thank you all for your work. The last plug I will make is to remember that it's time, 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 past time, in fact, to send in your essay or drawing or historical snippet to the new Farmer's Almanac. Just found a great girl who's going to help with this next one's promotion, and Charlie and I are ready to edit, and we have already about 50 essays in, um, but last year we had 80, so we have to push you. There's like 50 people on my list to push, but I'm going to push you on radio to say, get it in before the spring is gone. Sit down on your butt and write down your thoughts and share it with the other agrarians so that our literary discourse can evolve. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you to you guys. Thank you so very much. Thanks. That was fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.